Let's continue with prayer. I want to pray some specific things that we haven't prayed yet this morning. Lord, before we ask for some specific things regarding how we spend these next few minutes through the sermon, I want to pray for Randy Felder and for Dixon Baptist Church. Lord, I uh, know really virtually nothing about how uh, Dixon is doing, how Randy's doing. Um, but I trust and believe that they are holding fast to the same things that we're holding fast to. I trust and believe, too, that they deal with some of the same difficulties that we do and that Randy and his family probably struggle with some of the same things that the McGraws and um, others struggle with at Cross Point. And I, we just want to lift them up this morning, Lord, and ask you to just bless them. We don't have a real surgical specific prayer because we don't know anything specific about how they are or aren't. We just know that it's worthwhile praying for a, another church in our community and for a pastor and his family. And Lord, we just pray that you will bless them, that you will use them. I pray that the ministry of Dixon will be something that is a sweet aroma to you, that is kingdom advancing, a people that are attentive, that are working uh, steadily waiting for the master to return. Lord, I pray for Randy and his wife and his family, Lord, that they are enjoying you and just knowing um, knowing the difficulty of the ebb and flow of ministry and how um, how things change over the course of years, even within a body that is strong and healthy. Lord, I pray that you would guard them from being guarded pray that you would protect them from um, just um, glad-handing while they're hurting, um, if they are or if they do. I pray that they and Dixon would find a church family that is uh, authentic and open and honest and real about um, life with you. God, I pray that Randy is enjoying you as he's pastoring, as he's a husband and a parent, that he is fueled by worship. I'm thankful for the opportunity to lift up this brother and his family and this church that's in our community this morning. We are blessed to lift them up this morning. Thankful for a shared ministry. Lord, in regards to how we spend these next few minutes, I just want to thank you on the front end of this message um, for these wonderful, wonderful things you've shown us in Isaiah. Um, bad news and good news every week. I'm thankful that we have an opportunity in these next few minutes to consider both bad news, but in light of the bad news, wonderfully great news. God, we offer this time to you and pray that you'll speak to us, equip us, galvanize us, grow us in delight. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to the book of Isaiah. We are in chapters 3 and 4 today. That may sound like a lot. If you've been around Crosspoint a while, you know that we typically don't typically take off big bites like that. 
but Isaiah will have to. Our, the Lord will surely come back and we won't be finished. And um, that's actually not my motive. But Isaiah is a book that you can actually take larger bites of uh, because these, these things come in um, bigger passages. As you're turning there, let me just kind of give you a little background to what we've experienced in Isaiah so far. Week after week, it's been a mixture of good news and bad. Every single week, I mean, even the first week was an introductory sermon, but we alluded to some good things and some bad things. But so far, these last four sermons especially have been a mixture of good news and bad. They've been a really honest look at God's people week after week. An honest, uninflated, you know, nobody's writing a resume or a reference. You know how you do on those resumes and references? You, you don't want to foil anybody's lifelong plans, so you might inflate them a little bit. This is an uninflated book, man. It is a hard reckoning with the condition of God's people. It's a look sort of midpoint between the Exodus and Christ's coming, okay, which are about 1,500-year period between the Exodus and Christ's birth. It's about midway. It's about halftime, as we considered that football illustration last week. It's about the midpoint of the journey. This people have been, they've been incredibly blessed. They've been favored, yet they've turned their backs on God, and they've essentially forgotten him in the way they move. They have been in some ways, as we've considered these last few weeks, a more elaborate version of Adam and Eve, blessed yet forsaking God. I think in some ways what I've experienced these last few weeks, I think what we'll consider this morning as well and what you may have experienced these last few weeks is that taking a good look at Israel has been to take a good look at man and in some ways has been to take a good look in the mirror. We've considered together that there's nothing new under the sun as we've looked at Israel and we see ourselves and his people. I think we've had a lesson to these last few weeks, as Paul put it in Romans, that the human problem is trading the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. It's their story. It's our story, frankly, apart from the most important event in history that happened 2,000 years ago, the birth, sinless life, and death of Jesus Christ. It is our story apart from that. These sermons have been lessons on what we are without Jesus and what we have and are in Jesus every single week. And this week is going to be no different. Honest, bad news that will help us appreciate even more the good news. Let's look at our passage. I'm going to start in verse... 22 of chapter 2, just for the sake of context. You'll understand why here in a moment. We're in the middle of, picking up in chapter 3, we're in the middle of an oracle that goes from chapters 4, excuse me, 2 through 4. An oracle is sort of a prophetic type statement, but it's not as specific as prophecy. We're jumping right into the middle of that in verse 22 of chapter 2. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, 
all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I'll not be a healer. In my house there's neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of this people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their face bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants, are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The problem with this people so far in this passage, if we can just consider these first 12 verses of chapter 3, the problem behind the, the context behind this judgment is that they are trusting too much in human leader, leadership. In light of verse 22 of the chapter before, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? This is clearly speaking to a passage dealing with leadership and dealing with their overvaluation and elevation of leadership. And here he's explaining and presenting the consequences of trusting in human leadership above trusting in God, and those consequences are grave. Yet again, as we considered last week, what man elevates and lifts up, God is in the business of bringing down. And that's what he does here in this passage so far. God is going to take it all away. The mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the diviner, the elder, the captain, the magician, really shouldn't even be in the doggone list. Counselor, the charmer, there's another one that shouldn't even be in the doggone list that tells us what this people have become. They've adopted the practices of the neighbors. Anyone Judah might trust in and look to other than God in place of God he takes away as an act of judgment. But wonderfully, we can consider too, it's a grace that he does it. He takes it away. And verse 6 is a pretty stark passage. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, you have a cloak, you're wearing a coat, you'll be in charge. Let's make you in charge. You have a coat on, and you can be in charge of this heap and these ruins. Man, think about that. Such a leadership vacuum, such a profound leadership absence that qualification enough is just having a coat on. You're going to be in charge of this mess. And when they turn to the guy with the coat on, he says, nope, not me. I'm not going to be in charge of this mess. I know better. Even a dude with a cloak knows better than to take charge of this mess. 
Man, verse 12 gives us a clue of exactly what's going on. It says, my people, infants are their oppressors. Women rule over them. Oh, my people, watch this. Your guides mislead you and they've swallowed up the course of your paths. These leaders, and you can go down the list, the mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain, the magician, the counselor, the charmer. We could include the king in there. They weren't dependent on God, and the rest of Israel just followed their lead. So God ordains a leadership vacuum that you can almost hear, an audible sucking sound, a void of leadership. Where a guy has a coat on, you're in charge. Man. The real problem is developed later in Isaiah are the pictures of what's developed later in Isaiah, but here it is at In a nutshell, the leadership decisions, the leadership plans, the leadership measures terminated on them. And they did not, in practice, look to the Lord. Man, that's easy to do. Dads? Any dads in the room ever guilty of anything like that? Making plans for your family that are godless? Any businessmen ever do that? Make plans for your business and your employees that are godless. Any pastors capable of doing that for their church? Make godless decisions? Yes, absolutely. You can see how this could happen. The leadership decisions, the plans, the measures terminated on them. So the paths of the people, he says, are swallowed up by godless, self-sufficient, self-absorbed men. So as a measure of judgment, and I'd say also as a measure of mercy, he creates an audible sucking sound of a void of leadership. Let's continue in our passage. Verse 13. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. I appreciate this passage right in the middle of what he's developed as a leadership void. He basically, in so many words, says, I'll be your leader now. I'm going to remove all these people that you've trusted in, and I'm going to make it a moment where you're going to see me leading. You're going to see me taking my place, standing, contending, and judging. It's time for me to step in. And lead and assume his rightful place that he's really had all along. And God is going to reckon with that leadership, for they've crushed God's people and they've neglected the poor and the needy. Let's continue with our passage. Verse 16 The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks. Watch these images. Listen closely to these images. The daughters of Zion walked with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors. These gals are equipped, gracious. The mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be 
rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of that nice hairdo, well-said hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and a branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Man, it's terrible what he's done to the daughters of Zion here. Think about how they move, though. They move haughty with necks outstretched like peacocks. They're glancing wantonly, wanton cravings. Wanton is a great word. It means that they are glancing about promiscuously. Who can I have next? Who can I wink at next? They're mincing. The word means they're being dainty as they move about. And they're tinkling with their feet. It means they're making sounds as they walk like, hey, look at me. I did a little research on Jerusalem at this time, and I found that there was a run on selfie sticks in Jerusalem. Like they could not keep them in stock. These, they, 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 I mean, all the little shops were, had them on back order because all the gals were just buying them left and right because, man, that's all they were about. Look at me. So the Lord does what I'm calling very technical word that I've made up that I'm going to put a circle C behind. The uglification of Judah. The uglification of Judah's women folk, to be specific. The Lord will take away their finery and give them scabs. He will take away their perfume and give them rottenness. He will take away their well-set hair and give them baldness. He'll take away their rich robes and give them sackcloth. And he'll take away their beauty and give them brandings. Now, those brandings, those aren't really cool, nice, trendy sleeve tattoos that have multiple colors in it, like really cool. That branding is the branding of slavery, what they did in Babylon to their slaves. That's what they're going to have instead of their beauty is branding. In that terrible passage in verse 1 of chapter 4, Seven women will take hold of one man in that day saying, please let let us be your wife. You don't even have to give us any food. You don't have to give us any money. You don't have to give us any clothing. Just take away our reproach. As you've betrayed your heavenly husband, God is saying, groups of women, homely ones at that, will be begging one man, one poor sap to be their husband. Man, the terrible time. The uglification of Judah's women. Two thoughts, first of all, before we continue to the good news. First of all, on human leadership. Isaiah saw leaders come and go. The introduction to the book of Isaiah tells us that he served under four kings at least. We believe that he served under a fifth and was martyred under the fifth. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And the fifth was likely Manasseh, under which he was likely cut in two, sawn in two. Of those four kings, at least, we'll just consider those four that he uses to introduce, or he mentions in the introduction to his book. He saw leaders come and go, and of these four that he saw and watched, the ministries that he observed, or the, the reigns that he observed, he saw maybe one of the best in Hezekiah and maybe one of the worst in Ahaz. There's a guy that here is qualified to speak on leadership. 
One of the cool things, too, about these first five chapters of the book of Isaiah is they are a bird's eye view of his experience. It'd be like he's lifted above his 40 or 50 year ministry and he's had the chance to look and survey all that he's considered. And he must have known as he's seen the goodest, the good in Hezekiah, the bad in Ahaz, and everything in between. He must have known with everything in him, as we've considered every single week, as he's sharing reality and promises, good news and bad, Israel actually, and Israel eventually, that there is no human leader who will ever be able to get Israel actual to be Israel eventually. Man, he's seen these leaders come and go. He's watched them. Even Hezekiah. He must have had some hope in Hezekiah because he was a pretty impressive guy. But even Hezekiah selfishly celebrated the news that he was going to live a few more years coupled with the news that his grandsons would be eunuchs in the king of Babylon's court. He celebrated, ah, at least I'll get to live a few more years. And he was one of the best. It must have been hard for Isaiah as he sees these leaders up close and personal that the people trusted in, whose their trust was terminating on themselves. They're absorbing the paths of the people. He knew firsthand that there's no human leader, and he's seen them who could take Israel actually to be Israel eventually. They could take the good news and make it, or the bad news and make it good news. He must have known that full well. I think Isaiah knew that Israel needed a significant and profound game changer. Secondly, a thought on beauty. It's interesting that he focuses on the women as representative of the people. He's certainly speaking of the people together corporately, but the daughters of Zion are a nice um, glimpse into the heart of the people. The daughters of Zion, he gets really particular where he's talking about women and husbands, and that's why I think he's leaning in the direction of speaking directly to the women folk. And it makes me think to myself, Eve, do you realize the mess that you can get Adam into? Eve, do you realize the mess that you can get Adam into? I think it's fitting for him to address the women here because he's dealt with the men up to verse 12 and their leadership problems and their leadership issues. And now he's dealing with the women. And it's also fitting that what seems to go with trusting in man and considering man in whose nostrils are only breath is to put too much emphasis on what man thinks and on what woman wears. Think about it for a minute. As you think about all the things that she was wearing and all the things that were going to be removed, it looks like her beauty is pretty doggone artificial. She has all the accoutrements of the world, but she's not truly beautiful. He strips all that away, and she's left homely, plain, bald, and tatted up, and not in a cool way. Now let's consider the game changer, beginning of verse 2 through verse 6 of chapter 4. Isaiah's good news in this passage, the game changer and the beauty bringer. Beginning in verse 2, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. If you write in your Bible, if you're willing to write in your Bible, just take that lowercase b in your Bible and make it an uppercase b before I even continue. Just because I can't even stand the thought of that little bitty b still being a little bitty b in your Bible past the next few moments. It ought to be a 
big, fat, bolded bee right there. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem. And when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its mist by a spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There'll be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. Man, this is some seriously good news. The same God who brings the judgment of a leadership vacuum and the uglification of Judah is also the God who provides the branch, uppercase B, of the Lord. This branch of the Lord is a reference to the Messiah. In chapter 11, verse 1 of the same book of Isaiah, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That is speaking of the Messiah. And it's in the Messiah, according to this verse 2, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. It's in the branch that we find beauty and glory and a blessed land and fruit that's so abundant and so profound and so wonderful it leaves the remnant of survivors proud and honored and boasting in their branch. Man, that's... Some rich stuff right there. The branch of the Lord is the first person I want you to consider in this passage. And the next person that I want you to consider in this passage of verses 2 through 6 are the remnant, are the survivors. In verse 3, they're referred to as he who is left or he who remains. The remnant, the survivors, those restored to the land, it says, will be called or reckoned holy. You've got to know that those aren't the best and the brightest. They're not the finest, the shiniest pennies that he's going, to, he's going to bless and call survivors. These are the ones that he calls holy. He sets his love on them. He calls them holy and identifies and reckons them holy. And he writes them in the book of life. And then there's some fruit of his work that makes for a proud and honored bunch of survivors. And the fruit are three things that come right from this passage. Verses 4, 5, and 6. There's a big, wonderful piece of fruit in each verse. In verse 4, first, they will be cleansed. Look at it. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its mist, from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. The first wonderful piece of fruit for this remnant is they will be truly cleansed of their pride, of their filth, of their bloodstains. It made me think, I think fittingly, of what it says in Hebrews chapter 10 to a bunch of Jews, mind you. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time the branch, a single sacrifice for sins, the branch sat down at the right hand of God. It says in verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected a bunch of whores. 
He has perfected a bunch of imperfect people. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is a wonderful piece of fruit that this branch achieved. First, that we are cleansed. Secondly, in verse 5, that we are covered. It says in verse 5, the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flame of fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. This is Exodus language pointing back to the time where there's a pillar of fire and a cloud that's sitting outside the camp that's guiding the people. When it moved out, it meant pack your gear. It's time to move out to the next location. Haggai 2.5, a passage that we considered this last Wednesday night, tells us that that specifically, that fire and that cloud was the Holy Spirit. And here he makes a promise here that this branch is going to do something so profound, he's going to accomplish something so profound that that pillar of cloud and fire outside the camp will no longer be outside the camp, but will move inside the camp and will actually encompass the camp. That's what the branch accomplished. It made me think, I think, fittingly of the day of Pentecost when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The pillar and the column that was previously sitting outside the camp now encompasses the camp of God's people. That's what the branch accomplished. Something else that's really beautiful that the branch accomplished this in this particular passage too here in verse 5 is he says there's a canopy that's covering them. That word for canopy has to do with wedding language, what, where a husband and wife go on their wedding night. So beautifully, this branch is going to accomplish something so profound that people who were previously characterized as whores will now be his bride. And he will take us into his canopy. Man, that's seriously profound. We're cleansed. We're covered. And the third thing in verse 6, we are protected. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. What this branch accomplishes is protection from the judgment and from the heat because the branch is going to bear the judgment and the heat for us. Isaiah says, by his wounds we are healed. By his bearing that judgment and heat for us, we find refuge and shelter from the storm and the rain of judgment. But not just judgment, life in general. All the mess that life can throw at us, we find protection in this branch and what he's done and what he's achieved. Real daily shelter from all sorts of messes. Man, the fruit is hanging from the tree of what this branch has accomplished. We are cleansed. We are covered. We are protected. It's just imagining what this must have meant to Israel then. We see over the course of the rest of the book that they weren't repentant, although these are, this is the bird's eye view of the entire ministry. We don't know how this hit the people, but there's not a really good sign that it brought true repentance. But I wonder about guys like Daniel, 
who found himself in Babylon. I just can't imagine that Daniel didn't hold really tightly to this promise of the branch and the fruit that would hang from the tree as a product of what this branch has accomplished. I can't but imagine that Ezra must have held really tightly to it as he moved back to Jerusalem to get the temple going again. I can't imagine that Nehemiah must not have held really tightly to these promises about the branch as he moved back and rebuilt the wall. I can't but imagine that Hezekiah or that Haggai and that Zerubbabel and Joshua, the son of the high priest, didn't hold really tightly to these promises. But then I think fast forward to when Christ was born, thinking about two old folk, a man named Simeon and a gal named Anna, that I guarantee I I, I can't guarantee, but I believe with everything in me, they held tightly to these promises because Anna is showing up to the temple every single day looking for that branch. And Simeon, when he finds him, he holds him up and says, there he is. Take me home now. I've seen the salvation of Israel. Man, these people were looking for him, and I can't imagine they weren't holding very tightly to these promises. But then think about those who actually had a chance to watch Christ's ministry as it's unfolding, and then the finishing of it, where he's crucified and risen and ascends, where they're beginning to connect the dots and realize this was the branch. Man, they must have been elated. It must have been everything to them as they're seeing this and realizing this Jesus is the branch and what he accomplished provided cleansing and covering and protection. Man, they must have been proud. They must have actually boasted in his cross like Paul who said, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. We've got something to boast about. What the branch has accomplished, cleansing, covering, and protection. That's what this sermon is about right there. My goal in preaching through Isaiah has been that if Isaiah was here, you can't imagine what he'd look like. Just, I bet, hard as woodpecker lips. I bet that dude was tough, boy. He saw a hard ministry and a hard time, and he was faithful. I just can't imagine. If Isaiah was actually here preaching this sermon, that's what he would want this people to know, that you have something to boast about. That what the branch accomplished is that profound, and what they only had to hope in, we're living it. We're walking in it. We're bathing in it. We're sitting under the canopy. If Isaiah was here, I think that's what he would want you to do, is to delight in the branch and enjoy and be proud of the fruit of his work. I have a couple of additional thoughts that are brief. I don't know that Isaiah would have addressed these things, but I think they're fitting, just brief thoughts dealing with leadership and beauty. First of all, a leaderless environment. I want our shepherds to hear this. I want our deacons to hear this. I want our elders to hear this. And I want every other man, every other man in the room to hear this. Even our young men hear this. A leaderless environment, a place where men aren't leading, is a place under judgment. A place where men aren't leading is a place under judgment. And a context where women lack real enduring beauty is a place under judgment. But the good news for the church, the good news for the church is that we've been redeemed from this vacuum leadership, vacuum, that sucking sound, and we've been redeemed from the uglification of a fallen world. 
man, we don't have to walk in that because the branch bore that judgment for us. The church isn't to be a leadership vacuum or a place lacking beauty for he's the righteous branch who is our leader currently and is where we find real beauty currently. So the call for the church is to walk in what he's already accomplished for us, to walk in our freedom. The call for the church is to walk in the freedom that he earned. The church should be a place where under shepherds and under leaders are everywhere. What ought to be surprising is seeing somebody who's not leading in the church. They're home or in a ministry, both. Those are synonymous. What ought to be unusual is somebody that's not leading. That ought to be the rarity. Men ought to be leading at home, in life groups, and youth groups, and children's ministries, deacons and elders serving A leadership vacuum is not fitting for the church because we've been redeemed from that. We've been rescued from that. The church should be a place where men lead as they follow Christ's leadership. I love Paul's words in Colossians chapter 1. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's a dude right there that's leading as he's enjoying the branch, big B branch. Leading with all his energy as it works powerfully within him. Man, that's the church. And secondly, women in the church should look to Christ for their beauty. It's not just for women folk, though. It should be true of every single one of us. It should be true of us collectively. We are a beautiful people only in so much as we are adoring, enjoying, and delighting in Christ. It seemed fitting to end with this passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. It says, Do not let your adorning be ex- external, wives. The braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That sounds like a gal that's as satisfied and delighting in her branch. Right there. In God's sight, this is precious. Man, I pray that we'll be this people. I pray that he will continue to grow us in this people, to be this people. And I can frankly delight in the fact that I see leadership abounding everywhere. And I frankly, I'm not talking in an attractive like way that you could think weird. There's a lot of beautiful women in this church. I'm not talking in a weird way. I'm talking in a godly way. There are a lot of women in this church that are caught up, overwhelmed with adoring and enjoying Jesus. I'm thankful for that. Let's pray. God, this has been a, um, a sweet and challenging time in Isaiah. I'm thankful that there's good news and bad. And I'm thankful that it's in the bad news that we can see the beauty of the good news. God, I pray the ministry of this 
pulpit, the ministry of our classrooms, the ministry in homes that are led by shepherds, our functional shepherds in homes where a, a mom or a wife may be leading because her husband's not. Lord, I pray in all those contexts that both will be brought to bear, both the good and the bad, the good news and the bad, the actual and the eventual, who we are and what we've been called and reckoned. I pray that all those things will come together so that we will be um, an aromatic, bright, and salty people who are beautifully caught up in a beautiful Savior. God, we are thankful for our time together this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I've thought about this good news and bad thing. If you've paid attention these last few weeks in Isaiah, it's been relentless every single week, and this week included. And I've thought to myself, how can good news be good if we haven't really reckoned with the bad? If there's no bad news, how can it truly be good? And I thought just about this morning, some things I'd like for you to consider as we take the supper together, that we are a people who have been called holy. Not because we have any of that in us. Not because we're the best and the brightest. Not because we have the most potential even. It says he takes the foolish things and confound the wise. If anything, we're the least likely to succeed. We're the tax collectors and fishermen and sinners. The sick and the broken and the needy and the wounded. But it's those people that he's called holy. Let's enjoy that as we take the supper together. The good news and the bad. We're called holy, but we're not. But we are because he reckoned us. We're also a people who've been cleansed, a people who were filthy, a people who couldn't cleanse themselves, a people that could do everything in your power to get yourself cleaned up, but you can't do it. But the branch did it, and he did it thoroughly. It wasn't a partial cleansing. It's through and through. The good news in the bad is that we are a people covered. He marries those who were previously gomers. He marries the adulterer. He forgives her and he cleans her up. And he calls her his bride. And we are a people protected. He provided shelter from judgment that we deserve. No, we deserve it. But he didn't give it to us. He protected us from this judgment. He provided shelter from this judgment by sending the branch to bear that heat for us. Every week when we take this supper, we remember that. We remember what he did for us. We remember what he accomplished. It was profound. It was thorough. It was enough. Let's distribute the elements.